I have to cite my mother in this regard because she had beautiful handwriting and she used to maintain connections with the family far and wide by always writing letters. And there was nothing really that, um, that special about them, just sort of friendly and stuff. But people remembered them and they treasured them. And she was beloved by all, I think, in part because of these letters, regardless of how far away someone was, she maintained the contact. From our studios in Cuenca, Spain, I'm Kate Jetmore with The Listen, exploring the subtleties of culture and compassion in every conversation. Today, we kick off season 20, a series of interviews focusing on wisdom. I'm excited to share my conversations with several sage women, including a polyglot and author based in Italy, the daughter of Scottish immigrants on the road not taken, and a holistic health counselor on navigating the various stages of menopause. My guest today is Diane Joy Charney, an expat whose blog, In Love with France at Home in Italy, features her misadventures in the Italian countryside, where the food and fresh air are way better than the roads. Diane taught French and writing at Yale for 33 years. Her new book, Letters to Men of Letters, considers how what you read can help you understand who you are. An enthusiastic musician, she enjoys playing in Yale student orchestras, where she tries to hide behind the better players and never play any unintended solos. Among her other passions are yoga, growing her own food, and tap dance. Welcome, Diane. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Kate. When I reached out to you about appearing in this series on wisdom, I wanted to focus on your book, Letters to Men of Letters, and we will be doing just that later on in our conversation. But first, I'd like to look at the subject of language and the lessons language has taught you over the years. Tell us, as we begin, about your first memories of language and when you first became aware that there were other ways to communicate in the world other than your mother tongue of English. Well, I think I should start at the beginning. I was born in the Midwest, but I escaped at an early age, and I grew up in Middletown, New York, which is a tiny town in the Catskill Mountains, and um, it's pretty quiet over there. Um, And I've always been a musician, so I have a feeling that I have a sensitivity towards language that uh, when something is beautiful, it strikes me. And I always was fascinated by the sound of languages. And I was really good at French. And um, my French class was really uh, a highlight, but... The teacher, even though she was a wonderful French teacher, she had the world's worst accent. It was just painful to listen to. <laughs> but I knew, I, was, I knew enough to know that I did not want to sound like her. So as luck would have it, a French girl moved to town, and they put her in my French class because although she'd been speaking French all her life, 
She didn't know how to write anything. She didn't know any grammar, and she couldn't read anything. But wow, her accent was perfect. So I said, I'm going to sound like her. <laughs> and that was my plan, and it worked out perfectly for me because um, she do- I'm sure she doesn't realize what a great gift she gave me, but all my life I've been speaking French, and nobody can usually tell that I'm not a native speaker. So that was that was a good thing. But and I, I should say a, a word about Mrs. Van Esseltine because she deserves special mention. Um, she persuaded the Middletown School Board, which was a very conservative uh, place, that she could fill classes with advanced placement French. And indeed she did. Two full classes of us signed up for AP French. And the problem was going to be that some of the things that we had to read for this class were going to be a little bit, um, should we say, uh, risque. (laughs) So, um, well, okay, you had to order a special edition of Balzac because it was the little tiny expurgated version from which anything remotely uh, sexy or uh, exciting would have vanished. It wasn't there. There would be like three dots, and then you would know, wow, something was going on here, but I'll never find out. However, that wasn't true. When I got to uh, college and graduate school, I found out what was going on in those places, and it was really even more exciting than ever. But she really couldn't do anything about the Voltaire edition because there was plenty of stuff in there that needed to be censored. So her technique was as follows. She'd give the reading assignment for the next day, and she'd say, now students... Whatever you do, do not read pages X to Y. Do you hear me? No reading pages X to Y. And of course, what do you think? (laughs) We get to do our homework, and that's the first thing we we all go to. But anyhow, she was a wonderful teacher, and I'm grateful to her for getting me on this path to French literature. Oh, I love it. Well, I can imagine that speaking French and maybe other languages that you speak has opened many doors for you in in your life. I'd love to hear some of the lessons that you've learned from spending time in in different countries and cultures over the years and with and with the people in those different cultures that you've come into contact with. Okay, love to talk about that. When I was 16, I was I persuaded my parents to allow me to go to the French University in Montreal because Montreal was a lot closer than France seemed uh, seemed safer to them. So that was where I first fell in love with Albert Camus, and he's been my love for all of these years. And I of course, had no idea what was going on in this book that they had us reading called The Stranger, L'Étranger. But I could sense that this was going to be the beginning of, of, <laughs> of a, long, uh, reun- uh, a long relationship that we would be having. And I would walk through the, sto- the streets of Montreal reciting to myself the French poems that Madame Van Esseltine had made us memorize. And I felt so grown up and exotic. It was a wonderful beginning to be part of another culture. But then I didn't get to France until 1966-67, which was my junior year abroad. And that was probably the formative experience of my life. Uh, Over the years, I lived with many French families, and I maintained contact with, well, it's been a long time, many of them are dead, but the ones who are still living, I still see uh, quite regularly. And um, I learned a lot 
by being in these families because they were all different and it was um, really something. Maybe I should tell you about my first French family, which was a bit unusual. Sure. This was this was the um, Peguillon family. And we lived in the former apartment of young Jean-Paul Sartre when he was growing up. I found out later when I read his autobiography, Les Mots, the words he talks about our very apartment. And... Um, my roommate and I, Karen, figured out that we were sleeping in his bedroom, and we were very glad that he wasn't, because we were perfectly matched, and we didn't like him too much. So, but the things, everything was different when you're in a French family for the first time. We would spend two hours at the table for dinner, and that was a big deal, and there was conversation, and... Um, also, you had to know the customs and the uh, what we, how to how to comport yourself. But also, we were always hungry because we didn't have much money. And in France, people do not snack, or at least in our family, there was no snacking. And we were not invited into the kitchen. Madame Peguillon was the queen of the kitchen, so um, we were always hungry. So I recall the first time I was offered extra helping of the main course. At, at at dinner, and I was I couldn't restrain my excitement. I said merci, <laughs> and then they passed it to everybody else but me. I thought, oh dear, what's going on here? So that was how I learned that when you want something and they offer it to you, when you say merci, it means you don't want it. If you really want it, you have to say s'il vous plaît. So that was a hungry lesson that I had to learn. But once, only once. Right, you never <laughs> forgot that lesson. No, I did not forget that one. There's another weird one, like Monsieur would, one day he complimented me on my bracelets. It's another merci kind of situation. So he complimented me. I said, merci. And he got really annoyed at me. And he said, why are you saying merci? I'm not complimenting you. It's your bracelet. It has nothing to do with you. So how about that? You learn so many things <laughs> by living in a different uh, family situation. I also learned about French toast. Like we think French toast is something you have for breakfast. Well, no. <laughs> First of all, they don't call it French toast. It's called pain perdu, literally means lost bread. And what happens is all that stale bread that you gets left over from everything gets hung in a cotton bag in the closet. And then when the bag is full, then it's time to make pain perdu. And it's a delicious dessert. It's a, it's a confection. It's not a breakfast thing. So that was, uh, that was news to me as well. <laughs> um, and how often, how often do they eat pain perdu? Well, you have to wait till the, the bag gets full. So it isn't okay. an everyday thing at all. Right, it's right. kind of a special treat. And um, mm -hmm. it was it was especially delicious because apparently the longer that bread hangs in that basket, uh, the better it absorbs all the good stuff that we want to be. You know, it's interesting. I've, I don't have much experience in French culture, but um, I, I do think that there's some, you know, there's some commonalities between French culture and Spanish culture. Mm. And there is a type of French toast ah. that, and the name is not coming to me right now. Maybe it will before we finish our conversation. Mm -hmm. But around Easter, there's uh, a dessert that they make that's like, that? like French toast. And it's served cold. Uh -huh. um, and they serve it also with um, orange, Ooh. like sometimes like with orange peel. 
but it's it's basically the same thing, cold French toast for dessert. That sounds delicious <laughs> to me. I like the sound of that. Wow. I know, I know. Well, Diane, you've spoken to me before about the power of taking on a new persona when you speak a different language. What is it about speaking in another language that can give us that unexpected spark or sense of courage? I love that question. Um, I could probably refer here to my Mexican family. Um, I lived for a month and a half in the city of Saltillo in the Sierra Madre Occidental. And um, everyone was always shouting. The idea was like, why would you talk in a normal point, tone of voice when you could shout? So, and Conchita! Uh, and <laughs> I was shocked because I was kind of a, my sister and I were there, and we were raised kind of to be kind of discreet and quiet, but that was not at all what was going on there. Um, and the, 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 the key to the language part of the story is... I had the America did something that was didn't work out in the 60s for language acquisition. They went over to this method called ALM, the audio lingual method. And I don't know if you were a victim of this, but um, <laughs> they they you had to memorize these dialogos and they we learned to say I we learned to say absolutely perfectly at <laughs> like the most fluent person all the sentence in the dialogos. And the, the thing was, I knew all the questions and I also knew all the answers because that was the way it was. And so when I got to Saltillo, I was so shocked because people weren't saying the things that I had learned in my, in my dialogos. And um, so you had memorized these whole sort of conversations by rote. Absolutely. And it was so it was something it was sort of like Absolutely. how are you today? I'm fine, thank you. And you? I'm fine, thank you as well. Shall we go to the supermarket? Yes. <laughs> and so Hola Isabel, ¿cómo estás? Bien, gracias. ¿Y tú? Bien, gracias. Oye, ¿quién es ese chico? Es un amigo mío. ¿Cómo se llama? Se llama Juan. Juan, quiero presentarte a una amiga. Mucho gusto, el gusto es mío. Soy Juan Martínez. ¿A dónde vas ahora, Juan? A la clase de español. Ah, tú estudias español, nosotros también. Bueno, vamos a clase. That's the first one. That was from 1962. And they're all firmly ingrained in my mind. Oh, I can see that. So, Diane, did you have did you have a different persona when you got to Mexico? Absolutely. I decided I was going to be well, um, <laughs> Diana Narro de la Fuente because my family was the mother was Ophelia Narro de la Fuente, and there was Señor Alfredo Valdez de la Fuente, and their two spoiled daughters. Ana Rosa Narro de la Fuente and Gloria Narro de la Fuente. So I put it all together and I was going to be them, even, but I was going to be nicer than they were. Right, 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 of course. <laughs> but I had, we had quite an experience. Um, many funny uh, anecdotes that um, maybe are funnier in retrospect. We weren't, we were told, well, we were warned not to maybe buy the program and other people not to drink the water because... Um, and and they know the family noticed that we weren't drinking the water, right. and they they were they wanted to reassure us that everything was perfectly purified. So they took us up to the roof of our house, 
And there was the water. They say, see, it was the water was coming down from the sky and going into a rain barrel that was open, but it had chicken wire across the top. So the chicken wire filtered out all the bigger bugs. And that was the water purification <laughs> system that we had. So, um, yeah, I'm thinking that trip up to the roof probably didn't. Uh, fill you with confidence no no and then um (laughs) another thing that didn't fill us with too much confidence was uh senor alfredo wanted to take us out every sunday in his gigantic red american chevy to see the countryside so he puts on he says are we all ready to go and we're looking at him he's got a giant holster with bullets and a pistola and this is what we're going to do going to, out for our ride in the Sunday afternoon in the country. And um, he, he, we said, we, we, we said uh, what's with a pistola? He says, banditos. He raises his gun, and I'm thinking, <laughs> well, if you want to go incognito and avoid the banditos, maybe you shouldn't be ride, driving in the world's biggest red Chevrolet <laughs> when, you, yes, when you're out there. Yes, It almost sounds like he was so excited that he had two Americans that could I fit into so. this whole scenario that he had. The gun, the bullets, the gigantic car, and now the two Americans. We are going to need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back to continue our conversation with my guest, author Diane Charney. Back in a second. If you like what you hear on the listen, why not check out our personal interview services? Tell your favorite stories, honor your loved ones, and record special memories before they fade. It's the perfect gift for grandchildren, parents, and partners. For more information, check out our website at thelistenpodcast.com. This is Kate Jetmore with The Listen. If you're just joining us, my guest is Diane Charney, who's sharing her wisdom around language and writing. Let's turn now to your book, Letters to Men of Letters. Talk us through the premise of the book and how it came to be. I think my basic premise is a question. What if you could write personal letters to the great authors who have influenced you? What would you say to them? Mm. Uh, In my letters, I think about what these writers have been teaching me about myself, but also what they could offer the reader. And I had some worries about whether people would be interested in reading about authors they might not know or not yet know, uh, also being talked to by someone they didn't know who was me. (laughs) But I got a lot of reassurance of an old school friend of mine named Ralph, whom I hadn't reconnected with in 57 years. Um, He didn't know my authors, but he I told him he could skip around. He doesn't have to read from cover to cover at all. Just pick whatever strikes your fancy. And if you get bogged down in a letter, just move on to another one. But he really got into it. And then he got interested in some of the authors that he hadn't known about before. And he went to the library and he started reading about them. And I was so thrilled because um, I think I, I, although I retired from formal teaching in 2017, I think I'm still and forever a teacher. And I love the idea of being able to open a door for someone else. 
by showing maybe there's a way to speak to someone who's meant a lot to you, whether it's an author or someone else. And um, Ralph is a changed man. Oh, <laughs> he's not it. only reading... He's reading different authors, and he signed up for the Classic Literature Book Club on Facebook, and he started writing some reviews here and there, and we're still corresponding, and I'm just thrilled by that. That is wonderful. I love it. Diane, tell us um, some of or all of the authors who you write letters to in your book. Oh, my. Let's see. I don't have my book in front of me, but um, the first uh, letter in the book is to Franz Kafka, whom I, I, I came very late in life to a lot of these authors in my book because I had specialized in French literature, and the field of comparative literature really didn't exist at that time. So it was exciting to get to know authors that I had heard about, and um so he's the first one, and he's kind of the inspiration a bit for my book because he famously wrote a letter to his father, who was a terrible person, and terrorized him. And this letter was unsent. Uh, his mother begged him not to give it to the father, but mm. it, it, was, there was, it was very therapeutic, I think, for him to write that letter. And I began to to think about the power of letters, whether they're sent or not. So I think mm-hmm. I owe Franz a, a, debt, of <laughs> a debt of gratitude. <laughs> and um, some of the other ones that are in here, of course, Camus, because I said I loved him from the beginning. Um, another thing, that, another author who came to me late in life was Vladimir Nabokov. Everyone's read Lolita, but mm-hmm. um, I hadn't read other things. And I have... Um, Russian grandparents on all sides of the family, and I figured this was a big gap in my education. So I was thrilled when I got to study Russian literature by being an auditor in one of my colleagues' classes. I used to do this all the time. I was this little groupie. I would ask my colleagues, did they mind if I followed them around (laughs) and sat in on their classes? And of course, I would do all the reading and all the work and try to not Mm -hmm. say anything. (laughs) But um, that I got an entire alternative education by doing that. So that was a big, big thrill for me. And in fact, the, um, the professor who whose class I, I love so much. And it was called the Tolstoyevsky class because we read in it the two major <laughs> novels by Tolstoy and the two by Dostoevsky. And it was the best way to get through a New Haven winter. And it was only 150 <laughs> pages for class, which is not, was not a hardship at all. Then I got my husband and my son to take the class too, and they, they loved it as well. And the blurb on the back of my book happens to be, be written by... Vladimir Alexandrov, who was the professor and, and my good friend who uh, taught those two classes, the Nabokov and the Tolstoyevsky class. So you never know where these things are going to lead you. Oh, that's wonderful. And it sounds like a lifelong friendship. And it sounds like he really um, believed in your project when you set out to write this book and, and how it turned out. What is it about letters? Because your your book is is a series of letters that you've written to these uh, to these authors who influenced you throughout your life. What is it about letters that sets them apart as a writing practice? What is it about letters that makes them different from a diary or a journal or a memoir even? 
That's a great question. I feel like letters are more personal and more intimate. And also, I'm such an old dinosaur that I, w the whole technological in renovations and, and inventions of email and things like that were something that I, I, I have to admit, I never really... <laughs> I'm the, I'm the original techno dunce, but um, fortunately my husband is, is helpful in that regard, and he's not. But um, yeah, so to me also, from the old days, handwriting was really, that they would be handwritten. That was important because you had something that had been in two places. It had been in the hand of the person who wrote to you and also in your hand when you received it. And I thought that was magical. And also, that type of letter writing requires a lot of patience. Sometimes you, people just dash off an email, and um, it's, 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 it's not the same process as when you think, choose your words carefully, write them out, maybe. So there, there is that. And fa actually, thinking of Ralph, I don't think he would have read my book if it had been, like libraries are full of books, and, and, and they're, they're about, especially about my authors who are very famous, but a letter is something different, and it's, maybe it catches the eye of someone who might not otherwise go and read those literary criticism tomes that um, mm. are, are, are there in the libraries. But also, um, Interesting. yeah, I, uh, I, I've always written letters. When I was in France during the year abroad, I, I used my letters as kind of a journal, and I sent them home, and I, I collected them. Do you still have them? Do you still have those letters? Of course, of course. My pals and gals scrapbook in which I w it was a gift for me in the sixth grade and um, it was not meant to last uh, 75 years. So it's a bit in shreds, but all of the contents are still there. They're in a box. They're waiting to be reassembled and um, and it has all my, all my souvenirs, including there's an envelope on every other page. And in that envelope is all the letters from that particular period. So I do have them as well as many other souvenirs. And Diane, <laughs> what kind of, I mean, obviously writing a book of letters is quite different than just writing a letter that you're writing to, you know, your mom or a friend. That's true. Um, what kind of letter writer are you? Do you uh, do you write a rough draft first? Do you sit down with your stationery and the very first draft is the final draft? I think I I no I I'm constantly revising. I was a teacher of writing, and we always talk, talking about the need to revise. But I loved always writing in longhand on a yellow pad. That that it took me a long time to to kind of be won over to writing on an iPhone, which is, I'm embarrassed to tell you what I do, but I'm going to do it anyway. I sit in bed in the morning, I will wake up early, and I have my phone. And I write some of my best writing lying in bed on the iPhone. And then later I transfer it. But um, that is a very comfortable position for me to, to write from. And um, I use I, my, my trick after having lost things and felt so tragic about it. I write in the notes section of my iPhone because it's harder to screw things up there uh -huh. uh, you, if you push the wrong button at the wrong time, but the, the, it's saved in the cloud, whatever that is. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I don't know anything, but um, I, do, I, I do find that a great, a great help. So 
I have an iPhone that it's a wonder it doesn't explode. It has uh, over 3,000 things in it on the notes section alone. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you use the word technodunce. I, and you've used you've used that with me before in our correspondence leading up to this to this interview, and yet here you are. You know we're recording this. Um, you're in Italy. I'm in Spain. We're on a Zoom call. You've got your microphone on that end. You're telling me about you're telling me about the writing you do on your iPhone. I mean, there's a little bit of technology going on here. I just want to point out. Okay, you're sweet to say that. I feel like I'm an um, idiosavant. That means I just memorize how to do things, but have no understanding about how they how they work. (laughs) But don't you think that there's a lot of that in life? I mean, like, I have no idea how a car works. And I drive. I mean, some things you just yeah. don't understand, you know? That's a good way to think about it. I, I like that positive <laughs> attitude you have. So when I, listen, when I was a kid, letter writing was something that was very, very important to my mom. My 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 mom's father was a writer. So writing for my mom and, his, and her family was very important and very esteemed and we were always encouraged to write thank you notes and I remember writing home from camp and from college Um, and yet my son who is now 14 has probably written you know you could probably count on your hands on your fingers the number of letters that he's written in his life and um so I think we can both acknowledge that that the advances in technology do have an upside. I That's mean, true. E- evidenced by this call, right? But that is what true. do you think what do you think is being lost as younger generations turn away from traditional letter writing? Right. Well, it feels like those the old way of writing letters was a product of an earlier and slower and maybe more nurturing time. Um and I, I think that's important. Um, I have to cite my mother in this regard because she had beautiful handwriting and she used to maintain connections with the family far and wide by always writing letters. And there was nothing really that, um, that special about them, just sort of friendly and stuff. But people remembered them and they treasured them. And she was beloved by all, I think, in part because of these letters, regardless of how far away someone was, she maintained the contact. And so that's a, that's a legacy uh, that I keep in mind. And I dedicated my book to her, although my book has a letter to my father in it, which is one of the favorite letters um, here. I didn't mention there are some un... There are some authors who are not traditional in my book. I write a letter to Leonard Cohen, who was also a very late discovery for me, but people seem to like that one very much. It makes everyone cry, but in a really good way. <laughs> and um, they like the one of my fa- about my father because he, he was an interesting storyteller, a dermatologist who was kind of a cult figure who drew patients from a tri-state area and was a wonderful listener and storyteller. And um, yeah, but my mom, I'm sure she wouldn't have really understood what I was doing in this book, but she would have been very proud of me for seeing it through and... Um, <laughs> and doing it, but that's okay. Uh, mm-hmm. Not 
not everybody is into um, French literature. <laughs> right. What about letter writing? I mean, it's obviously something that's been very important to you, central to your life. Is it something that has been passed down in the generations in your family? I think I think so. Everyone is 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 into into writing letters. Um, I wanted to ask you though, when you were growing up, when when I was a kid, little girls of a certain age got as a prized gift a diary, a little diary that had a key, <laughs> so you could keep your secrets in there. And you wrote in your di- dear diary. Actually, when you get it, you get it all excited, and then you start saying, "Oh, I'm going to do this every day," and then. Little by little, they usually peter out. But I wondered, is you're a different generation from me. Did you have a diary? I did. I remember, I mean, what you've just described, it was my dream when I was a little girl. I I just love um, blank books and, and regular books. I love any sort of paper product, office supplies, notebooks, pens, erasers, all that stuff. I love all that stuff. So on many occasions, I received, um, you know, stationery, note cards, but also diaries. And I definitely had the version that had the key. Um, But I have to admit, Diane, that I never wrote in them uh, regularly. I don't, I mean, later in my life, I definitely have had sort of chapters in my life when I've journaled, but I don't think they ever occurred in those diaries that you've described. And part of the reason is that they were really tiny and cute and not comfortable to write in. <laughs> that's true. That's true. The most fun part of it was, I think, the key. <laughs> that you just felt like you were so grown up to have yes, a exactly. secret diary. Yeah. But you asked you me about it. The- <laughs> you said it. No one can look at my diary. Right. You asked me about the generations. Um, my son has written, in the time it took, in the 74 years it took me to write one book, my son has written um, at least 15, and he's got four more coming out. And, um, but he's also, how that came about is interesting to me. He went to a very enlightened kindergarten. And from the time they were real, it wasn't, yeah, really little, they were encouraged to write books. So the t- they would, even before they could write or spell, they might speak th- their story to the teacher and she would put it into a book and it would be stapled together. They'd bring it home and they'd be so proud of themselves. And so they always had the impression in this wonderful school that what they had to say was really of value and merited being recorded. So I, I think that was the whole, whole start of it. And I have two granddaughters who are very young um, one just turned seven and the other is going to, is she's eight at the moment, but she'll turn nine in April. So these girls write books all the time and they think it's perfectly normal that everyone should be writing books. For my birthday, they gave me a illustrated book called The Adventures of Super Nona. <laughs> and so they're really into all these action figure things and video games and stuff, which I don't know anything about. But they 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 they're great artists too. They illustrate all their books, and um, so I think it's definitely a family thing. <laughs> you asked about that, and my husband's finishing his first book now. So wow, we're we're a book. Yes, definitely, <laughs> definitely writing. a family of writers. Well, let's take another short break, and we'll be right back to talk more with my guest writer Diane Charney. If you're enjoying this episode, check out our season four series on language, our season six series focusing on writers and writing, 
or our Season 16 series on books, in which I spoke with Pulitzer-nominated author Noah Charney, son of today's guest, Diane Charney. You can explore our full archive by following us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Spotify. There are dozens of interviews waiting for you there, all free and easy to access. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and be sure to join our Facebook group, the Listen Podcast Community. And if you'd like to make a donation to the show or pitch a guest, you can do so through our website at thelistenpodcast.com. We're talking with my guest, Diane Charney, about wisdom and lessons learned through writing and language. Diane, before we go on, why don't you let our listeners know where they can find you? And we'll be sure to include that information in our show notes. Okay. I'm on Facebook, and uh, you have the address. And I also write, have written a blog since 2011 called In Love with France at Home in Italy, because I'm pretty amazed at how a Francophile like me <laughs> ended up living in Italy and not in France. And um, I wouldn't have known how to write a blog. I didn't even know what a blog was. But as a birthday present, my son and daughter-in-law wrote on a macaroni um, styrofoam. <laughs> this, is the, this is their gift. Um, this entitles you to a blog that we will set up for you completely. And you don't, it's going to be a great thing for you. And uh, they, I was shocked at that because that's the kind of gift that <laughs> goes on giving. And it started in 2011, and I've been doing it ever since. Right. And um, yeah, so the, um, yeah, there's plenty of misadventures that happen to you when you first move to Italy, <laughs> by the way, uh, especially when you live in the country as we do in the middle of nowhere. And I decided to chronicle them in my blog. And most people think it's really funny. And a lot of the things are funnier in retrospect than, uh, than at the time, but um, I'm getting be- I'm getting better at trying to trying to put it all together. So uh, that's been an important part of my own personal growth, especially in writing. Um, yeah. Wow. Well, that's amazing, Diane. I mean, that's ten or eleven years of a blog. That's really something to be proud of. And during that time, you also managed to write this book. So wonderful. Listen, in our show notes, we're gonna we're gonna include um, a link to your Facebook page. We're gonna include a link to your blog to make it easy f- for our listeners. And we'll also include a link to different um, ways that they can access your book through Amazon. And I'm sure that local booksellers will carry it as well. So we'll include all of those links. Diane, in a series on wisdom, it's only normal that my guests are older. And you you referred earlier to 75. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. your age, yeah, but that is, um, you know, you, you plural, you and my other guests are mothers and grandmothers and aunts. But it's also really important to remember that even when you're 75, you still have or had mothers and grandmothers and aunts of your own. So I'd love to know, what is your relationship like now with your own mother? Okay, I'd love to talk about that. Um, I've, she, we lost her in 2018. 
She lived to be 93 and a half years old, and she had not a wrinkle on her face. She was very uh, youthful looking, and she also had all of her marbles, which I think is, is great. Um, but I figured out a way to keep her with me that uh, is really works for me, and I'd like to tell you about it. Um, I write her a, a letter every year on her birthday, which is August 1st. And so the first year, the first birthday letter happened in, it would be happy 94th mom. And now we're up to happy 98th mom, which will be happening on August 1st. But what, what I do is throughout the year, as I think about her, I write myself a few notes and I'm very big on touchstones. Um, I collect a lot of things and things that have symbolic value for me. And so I usually organize my birthday letter to my mom around some kind of touchstone that's personal to us. And it starts out that way, but it goes in many directions. So it might be something, uh, the first year it was uh, the special eyebrow pencil that she she wanted to see the world. She wanted to get out of St. Paul, Minnesota. So she joined the Navy to see the world. That was their slogan. But she only got as far as Mare Island, California. But afterwards, on the GI Bill, you were allowed to go get some education. And she decided she would do modeling. So she, she did a bit of that. She was very pretty. And the special pencil, eyebrow pencil, was actually not an eyebrow pencil at all. It was a... Um, an artist pencil, and it was labeled as black, but it was the kind of pencil that made the perfect eyebrows, no matter what color your eyebrows were. And so she taught me how to use that, and 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 that was a that was a that was a it sounds like a silly thing, but what she taught me was you don't have to stay within the line of your eyebrows. You can go a little, you can go above it and make it better. And that was kind of a metaphor for me. So my first. My first um, birthday letter used that. Another one used um, the French lace curtains that she helped me make um, for our house. I ha we had a gigantic house that had f 52 differently sized windows in it. Mm. And, um, and <laughs> so I went to France one year armed they, with, a, uh, on graph paper, my mother had, had uh, drawn every window and every uh, to, to scale on the scrap paper and when I came back I had all the material for the, to do the curtains and we made them actually I was not much use but we worked together on them and I had these beautiful French lace curtains that that's, were really the signature design motif of our house so that I've talked about that um, there are always uh, each time I figure out something. Last year's was apples because we live uh, on a on a in, in the middle of the countryside, and we have three apple trees that are always dropping apples, and there's always mm. many more than we could use. And she had the same thing at her house, and we used to figure out ways to use all of these things. And I figured that the I thought that the apples were a nice bond between us, and how we managed to make good things out of those <laughs> apples. So I haven't figured out this year's yet. Mm. What are some of the lessons that you've learned from your mother in these last few years since her death? Well, she was the kindest person uh, ever. And I've learned about the importance of kindness as opposed to 
any other measures of success or mm. or whatever. And she she always prided herself on her coping mechanisms. Uh, she just she she had she had a difficult mother herself. My grandmother was really <laughs> a handful, and she had a difficult, beautiful older sister who was very glamorous, um, but who died young uh, of breast cancer. Uh, uh, and I, she was, she was a major. You asked me about women who were models for me. My my aunt was so glamorous and so interesting. And uh, but my mother was the quiet, steady one. And I think I learned a lot from that. And also, <laughs> she also had the the other gift was I have a grand my grandfather, her the the husband of this tumultuous mother of of my mother. My grandfather was just the the most wonderful man ever, and um, he was a great blessing in in my life. Mm-hmm. Also, I'm the oldest of four, and that means that's a uh, that's a position that uh, kind of. Well, it forms your character. I think I, even though I've I've officially retired, I'm still and always a teacher. I think when you're the first child, sometimes that is that is the case, and and I embrace that. <laughs> well, Diane, before we wrap things up, I'd love to ask if you have any advice for our listeners, not necessarily those who are listening because they're interested in writing or because they're interested in languages, speaking or learning new languages, but just fellow human beings who happen to be younger than you are, what bits of wisdom can you share that would make life easier or more enjoyable? Well, I'm actually going to advocate for two things that might not be everyone's cup of tea, but I, I advise everyone to start writing and even to start writing letters, maybe to someone who means a lot to you and you don't ever have to deliver those letters. But I think the act of writing the letter will, in, in doing that, you learn a lot about yourself and it's good to be able to express those things in in writing. I think it's very different from other ways of doing it. But the other thing is, these days, uh, language requirements are have gone out of fashion. Very often, you don't need to have a foreign language to graduate as, as you did in my day. But I'm going to encourage people to try to learn a foreign language. I taught myself Italian on the Trans-Europa Express train between Amsterdam and Rome. I had these little flashcards, Italian flashcards. On one side was a sentence in, uh, in, in Italian, the other side was in English. And there was something about handling those that made those things stick. Like this is like, a, a, this was in 1972 that I did this. And um, those, those sentences are firmly ingrained in my mind. And I was doing this on the, in a compartment on the train and there were Sicilian work, workers in my compartment, and they thought this was absolutely hilarious. They'd never seen anything like it, and they all wanted to help me with this. So by the time I got off the train in Rome, I could say all kinds of things, and they weren't entirely useless because I was able to get us a room and all this stuff. So, But the main thing about learning a foreign language is it reminds you that you shouldn't worry about being perfect. That is not, (laughs) you have to commit to making all these mistakes. And a perfect example is my son, Noah, who 
is always complimented on his mastery of all these languages, and he never worries about making mistakes uh, at all. And he, even though he does, it doesn't sound like he does, and they, they, they think it's just great. He has a perfect accent. And at his, at his wedding, we were, um, his, my husband asked his father-in-law, um, well, how is Noah Slovene? Uh, how, 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 how well does he speak Slovene? And the, the, the father-in-law said, oh, he makes plenty of mistakes, but they're such beautiful mistakes. He just, it was, they're, they're charmed by it because uh, it, it, work, it works for him. So um, that is, I, I also th- always thought as a teacher, students would be in my classes and maybe they had a horrible French teacher. Maybe they thought they hated French and stuff. And my mission, I always thought there was value in teaching people how to approach things for which they think they have no talent or interest. And I would, I, that my challenge was to, to make them change their mind. And they usually did. <laughs> so I'm all for learning a foreign language. And also it's fun. Yeah, it is fun. And I, I also, I just want to go back to your advice. Well, you didn't frame it as advice, but it's a really great way to look at it, you know? you know, take the plunge and know that you're going to make mistakes, but let them be beautiful mistakes. Well, Diane, I want to thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It's been great getting to know you better and finally getting to spend some time with you. It was such a pleasure having Noah on the show. And as soon as he and I said goodbye at the end of his interview, he said, you have to interview my mom. She would be the perfect fit for this show. And we've been trying ever since to get it on the calendar. So thanks for sticking with me. I'm glad it finally happened. And I want to wish you and your whole family all the best. Thank you so much. It was a thrill to be here. Next time on The Listen, we'll continue our series with another conversation focusing on wisdom. Hope you can join us. The Listen podcast is produced and recorded in Cuenca, Spain, located midway between Madrid and Valencia. I want to thank Lisa Dahl, our web guru, and Julie Haley, who handles our social media. And many thanks to our technical team, John Jetmore and Lucas Munoz Jetmore who makes sure the show is ready to go each week. I'm Kate Jetmore, and this is The Listen.